pay close attention to Miss Emma. The young at heart can turn in their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians 6, we continue our march through the institutions of God's delegated authority in our study of what I'm calling God and government. It's a, it's a topic that is provocative. That'd be a great title for a book, you know, God and government. But then when you ask, what does the Bible say about God and government? It's the divine institutions of delegated authority. Because Romans 13 isn't the only word in the Bible on government, but it is an important word. All authority proceeds from God. Every authority structure is God delegated because he is the sovereign and he has delegated it. And that's how it works. The ownership of property, the delegation of property and its distribution is part of this issue of government. Because if you own something, if you have come into possession of it, you are in that position of authority to decide what is done with it. That's government. That's management of resources. And so when you think of it that way, we say government, we mean Washington, D.C. or Hartford. We mean, you know, the police officers, then they don't carry the 9mm or 40 caliber sword for nothing and all when we say government, we should think sovereignty and delegated responsibilities. And that's what I'm trying to do in this is say, you know, you've know a ton about government from a biblical perspective because you, Preston City Bible Church, you know the divine institutions. And so we're kind of walking through these and we are seeking to understand what God wants us to know about these institutions. And we've said that they all flow from the first one. There is God who has always been there from eternity past. And then on day six of creation week, he made man. And that establishes divine institution number one, the way you relate to God. Now think about this just for a second. We're talking about parents today, parents and children. But just think about this for a second in terms of the first institution. Number one is you and God. If people don't know that it's about you and God... And that's the beginning and the first step in any government is self-government. Because God doesn't force you, right? He, he sets you in conditions, but he always gives you the responsible choice. You have to choose. He gives you a command, and then you've got to deal with the command. Will I do it or not? And that volitional component in Divine Institution 1. If we don't even believe in God, if we don't even acknowledge God in every aspect of our choosing... Think about that. There is no government. There is no biblical government. You've completely divorced the whole process because it's all built on the function of individual volition. It's such a powerful thought. It's such a powerful component in life, the ability to make choices. And you're not God, and I'm not God, and God alone, right, is the creator. And that creator-creature distinction calls for us certain responsibilities to know that he loves us first we love him in response for example that he is the legislator we have to deal with the legislation he makes the command we follow it we don't command him there's a strain of christendom today that takes a couple of passages of scripture out of context and then under the the theory of prevailing prayer that's prevailing prayer they're going to command god that if you want it bad enough and you name it loud enough, and you claim it with enough personal conviction and authority, then God has to do it. I once heard someone espousing, naming, it, claiming it in the family, not this church family, but my 
uh, my extended family. I once heard, heard someone try to say, well, you just have to call into things those which are not. You just have to, you just have to name it. You just have to call into things those, those things, call into being those things which are not. And I thought, that sounds like Scripture, but I don't think it's properly applied. And then I, later on I remember, that's God talking to Abraham. He's the one who can make the Abraham who's sexually dead far beyond sexual you know, capability. He can make him able to, to have a miracle boy, uh, Isaac, at 100 years old. You're going, to call into thing those, you're going to call into being those things which are not. And I'm like, where'd you get that? Where did you get that idea? Well, we're God's image bearers. And we're supposed to imitate God, and he does that, so shouldn't we do that? No, no, that's, that's the whole thing. We're the creature. He's the creator. We bear his image, but we are not him. And that idea of deification is a big problem, uh, really, from the first sinner. I'm going to be like the Most High God in the sense of replacing him, in the sense of being uh, what he alone can be. And so just getting that down that I'm not God, what I feel like isn't what God said, Right? When my emotions drive, when my feelings, my urges drive what I think is right, I should be really careful about that. That's, you need a healthy skepticism there. We did a series years ago called The Benefit of Doubt where we need to doubt our, even our own personal inner leanings and motivations and test all the spirits because God has communicated to us in, in propositions and thoughts. And, uh, and we have to deal with that because sometimes it goes against how I feel. And so... Divine Institution One is a, is a lifetime uh, consideration, you and God. And then there's marriage, you and your mate, and the way God designed for that to work. Of course, if we can't get with God is God and I am not, so he is the legislator and I'm the person being legislated. He sets the tone, I make the decisions based on what he said. If we can't figure that one out, then how could we ever figure out the difficulty of putting two sinful people together with their competing interests this side of the curse? And, and expect it to go anything other than, <sighs> it's, just, it's just a beating. And the best you could hope for is that we have mutual affection and the benefits that marriage does bring, and, and we love it. But are you really going to thrive? Is it really going to be what God will make it if you walk by the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians 5, marriage, where you have headship and bodyship, as we call it, the husband and wife the lead, the help meet, the self-sacrificial love that initiates the self-deferring submission. If you're deferring your interests, ladies, to submit to your husband, and he, in submission to Christ, is loving you self-sacrificially, that's a beautiful thing. That's a, that's a life of Valentine's Days. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. But regardless, according to the scriptures, regardless of whether your husband is the self-sacrificial lover he's called to be, you're called to submit to him. And husbands, regardless of whether she submits to you, you're called to love her as Christ has loved the church. And that's self-sacrificially. And we've studied this. And this is the second of the institutions if you walk through the sequence of the Bible, as we've said. And now you have parents and children. Last week I called it household. I'm going to amend that because in Ephesians chapters five, chapter 5, 22 through uh, six, nine, you have the whole household, and that isn't necessarily children. It goes into small business, uh, household-based business toward the end of that section with slaves and masters and that Roman culture, which today would be management and labor. And so the third institution is not the whole household. It's just parents with their children and the specifics of that. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's unique. All of these are unique. The relationship between a husband and wife is an authority structure, but it's not like parents and children. The scriptures are clear on that. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. There's a difference with the summary language there because there's a difference in tone. And, and that's important to note that. You're not husbands. You're not supposed to be taking a father role over your wife. But fathers must parent their children, right? And so that God establishes these lanes, and, and we're suggesting that, that there's a little bit of a nuance here, but the revelation of Scripture is very helpful. And I think today we'll see some really powerful things about God's design for, uh, for, for parents and their children and how this is supposed to work. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All right, that's the first verse that, uh, well, maybe the third verse you get your kids to memorize, right? And so it's old hat, and they forget it, but they know it. And you say, well, do you remember your verse? And, no, I don't choose to remember right now. But children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the word hupokuo, to obey, it means to listen and so, and, and, and listen intently and so do what you're told from listening, because you can't obey something you don't know. You can't obey a command you haven't heard. He quotes Ephesians, or sorry, he quotes Exodus chapter 20, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Ephesians 5, 22 through 25, wives to your husbands, how you treat your husband, how you're supposed to deal with him. Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, in summary, it's 32, 33 does both, but 30 through 32 is husbands, how you should deal with your wives. Can anybody tell me the prior context that governs all of that? Ephesians 5, 22, wives to your husbands, submit to your husbands in all things. What's the prior context? Yeah, be filled by the Spirit. Be filled, empowered, equipped by means of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, which is what that means. The filling of the Spirit is not an ecstatic, uh, otherworldly trance-like state. That's not what the Bible means in Ephesians 5.18 by be filled with the Spirit. Because in verse 15 it says you have to have wisdom. You've got to be wise. And that's the topic. But 5.18 is the mechanics, be filled by the Spirit. And the, and the picture is don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or waste, but rather be filled by the Spirit. And so think about the, we, we use effectively the word influence. If someone is driving under the influence, you say it's not their fault if they have an accident? No, we say it is their fault, and they shouldn't have done that, right? And we hold them personally responsible for the choices they made while under the influence of alcohol. Okay, um, so, so ask, let me ask you this question. If you're filled by the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit controlling you? Is He controlling you? Because I contend that Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. I contend that you can't commit personal sins while being filled by the Spirit. So what, but we do sin. We do grieve the Spirit. So it's better to say influence than control because the Holy Spirit doesn't cause you to sin. But He does influence you with the Word. He does fill you as you walk with him. See what I mean? This idea of control. Be careful about control. Why did I just do that? Oh, it must have been the Holy Spirit. Why did I just say that awful thing? It must have been the Holy Spirit. I've seen people try that. Not, not what we mean. You're responsible for your choices. The 
The Spirit is influencing you through the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you. And that is the filling of the Spirit. But that's the, the command, be filled by the Spirit, that is governing how you deal with your husbands, ladies, uh, how husbands love their wives, how parents and children function, how slaves and masters. In other words, this is application material for a Spirit-filled household. That's what you've got. And so it's vital to understand this as your spiritual life. But let's look at the, the first chunk of this. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Lower authority, higher authority is the sequence. Children, or children obey your parents, lower authority. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger, higher authority. Slaves first, then masters. It's the authority structures all through. Head, then body, for wife, or, uh, sorry, body, then head, wife, then husband. Why does he do it that way? Why does Paul teach the lower position being filled by the Spirit and dealing with the higher human authority? I contend it's because they have the harder lift. They have the heavier lift because unfair, sinful authority. Somebody misuses their authority, and you have to deal with that. And so he, so he treats the person under greater pressure first to demonstrate the power of the filling ministry of the Spirit. The, the line here, that you can see clearly because I've drawn it on the screen, <laughs> is authority. The breakdown is parents to children, and it is an authority line. Now, some people, if you say authority, they are, um, they are kind of afraid of that word because they feel like any expression or use of authority is an abuse of authority, right? We've seen this. If, if you assert any authority, then that's an abuse of authority because you're stepping on, what, my, my volition, what I feel like or something, what I would prefer. And that extreme libertarianism is not a biblical attitude, right? So, no, you have a responsibility over whatever God has entrusted to you, and wives have authority, and husbands have authority. But wives don't have authority over their husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. We can talk about it in 1 Corinthians 7 and whose body is whose. But in the picture, in the structure, the body doesn't control the head or the head isn't really said to control the body. There's a relationship between the two and it is hierarchical. What I'm trying to say is there is this authority line. And it's really important to see this because authority is divine institution number one. The decision that I make about that which has been entrusted to me, the decision that I make about dealing with my wife as a husband or dealing with my children as a father, the decision that I make with that is about me and God, first and foremost. I know what the right choice is in as much as I know what he's told me the right choice is. And now the challenge for my discipline, for my character, is do I choose to do what God has asked me? in the being of a husband, in the being of a wife, in the being of a father or a child. They all resolve back to DI1, and it's so helpful to see that. But in that authority line, we've got children first and parents second. I believe that it's important to note, we said that all these are, you know, kids have to make their choices. That's DI1, volition. Parents have to make their choices. These are derivative, but parents and children is not only derivative of volition, that the kids are making their decisions, the parents are making their decisions. It's something very vitally connected that's unlike any of the others, and here it is. You and I as parents are equipping our children to make right choices in DI1. We're setting them up for that ultimate self-government. 
Now, some of you are not parents or your kids are grown and gone and blah, blah. Listen, this is a great rationale to think through because you value the church family. You value uh, the future that God may give you children or you value the civilization that has fallen apart because we've lost this. But what parents are doing, in summary, is equipping their children to have that relationship with God that he's called them to. And I'm getting that dogmatically out of Ephesians 6, which we just read, that you train them, you nourish them in the admonition of the Lord, the, the instruction and admonition of the Lord. So it's, you're, that's not what husbands are called to do. Husbands love your wife self-sacrificially. There's a sanctifying function in that, and it's, an in, it's more influential really, than, than hand-over-hand training. But you're not supposed to be training these children to fear and love the Lord. And that's that, that's that equipping for DI. So it's the only institution like it. It's the only one, and it's unique, and I think that's very helpful. So listen to this, this rationale. If I'm telling you that parents and children have a special thing that God's given us, where parents are equipping their kids, think about the application in terms of something that bothers us. For example, in Hillary Clinton-supported... Um, UN Declaration on the Rights of a Child. Disconnecting authority of parents and training their children to fear God from the household and inserting exterior government entity authority into that arrangement. See, it graded on us when this was proposed and all the little horrible things and anti-biblical things said in there about villages and so forth. But, and I, I don't mean to be political and name a person that, you know, gets your, that is a distraction. To me, it's just a symbol. The person becomes the symbol that kind of summarizes the problem. The, the evil of saying exterior governmental entities or even international government entities into the sacred bond between parents and children where parents are to train their children to fear God, it's, a, it's, a, it's unthinkable biblically. But if you understand what parents are supposed to be doing as we walk by the Spirit, that, that is our task to train the children to make their decisions to fear God. Oh, yeah, that's, that is the problem. It's a, it's a worship problem. It's an existential problem because you're undoing definitions. You're changing what marriage is, for example. You're changing what, what children and parents, the relationship is designed to be. The purpose of this institution is not merely to protect them. Some of us are like, well, I protect my kids. And good, but it's not merely protect them. The question is you're keeping them safe for what? Shepherds protect. But it's not just protection. You see what I mean? There's more involved than protection. For example, if you have them locked away in a secure location, but you don't feed them, well, you protected them from exterior threat, but they died of starvation. You protect them from that. So just for example, that's a stupid example. But so they grow up and they didn't get hurt, which is good. This, that's part of the goal. But for what? See, we don't have the goal if it's just protect them. You dads that are protection minded, excellent. You who aren't, what? Figure it out. You're supposed to protect your kids. But for what is the question? And when I say protection, some of you are like, oh, he means um, like overprotection. No, I just mean shepherds protect the flock. If it's entrusted to you, protect it. And you got to be wise how you do it. And the most important way to protect a child, by example, from, from drowning, how do you protect a child from drowning? Teach them to swim. You can't put a big enough fence around the pool if you've got little boys. you got to teach them to swim. 
I don't know about little girls, we're not allowed. But little boys, you got, you got to teach them to swim because they're going to defeat the fence if they want to. Right? And so that, like, that's, an, that's an analogy. How do you protect children from, from drowning in the world? Yeah, you teach them to manage. I'm not saying you're going to stop the world from invading. You, you're going to have to teach them to reject it. They have to learn to swim. So safe for what is the question? The second, the thing that is, in terms of purpose, it's not merely to feed them. Mamas that love to see your kids eat. By the way, dads like it too. But we love it. it I think it does something with moms that's a little different. Hits you all a little different because you're made differently. Your bodies feed them for the first uh, several uh, days of their lives. A few dozen days. They, they eat from, their, their nourishment comes from their mother's body. There's something about the way women are made that I think it, men, we can imagine it, what it must be like for you to feed a child. But, but, but that's not a, an end in itself. It is an important goal, but it's not the goal. Growing up, they're going to grow up. But how are they going to grow up? Oh, those boys are good and healthy and strong. Whose boys? Eli the priest. Good, strong, healthy boys. Mm. They were really strong. You know, they grew up uh, healthy, and they were able to take by force anything they wanted from any of the people in Israel when they went and collected uh, the offerings. They would stick the fork in the person's pot. Oh, hi, we're here. And they bust in, and they would stick their fork, their priest's fork, into your pot, and whatever they pulled out, that's the priest's portion. And it is not an accident in the story of Eli the priest who raised Samuel the prophet that Eli died from a broken neck because his heavy, heavy weight, if he fell, he fell off a log, crushed his neck. He was a super, super abundant person, partly because he didn't restrain his sons and he benefited from their thievery. The worst father in the Bible, arguably. What are they growing up into? By the way, the worst father in the Bible, Eli, raised one of the greatest human beings ever, who ever lived, Samuel the prophet. Go figure that out. So it isn't just nourishing them. What are they growing up into? See, that's why you need a vision. That's why you need to know what you're after. And that's what the scriptures are doing. Not merely an exercise of higher authority. My job as a father is to be the father. Well, you have to assert authority, but if you don't know what you're doing it for, what's the point? You know, when you're, when you're 15, 16 years old, well, when I would grew up, a 15-year-old is somebody that's expecting to drive in a few months. Or they're practicing driving with their dad, and then they're going to drive for themselves on their 16th birthday. We're going driving. That's not how we are up here, I understand, generally with the teenagers. But when I was growing up, that's how, that's how it was. 16, we've got to drive. That's how kids are. We want to drive. Well, good. Why do you want to drive? Because it's driving. And it is. It's 15, 16 years old. It's an end in itself. Ah, I forgot something. I got to go back to Lowe's. I'll go. Remember that? I need somebody to run. I'll go. I'll make the effort. I, I look forward. We're going, we're heading toward that perhaps where I get my valets or have wheels so they could go, you know, fetch things. <laughs> but when you're a kid, the driving is an end in itself, but that's not, that's not the way to think about what we're doing in life. This is a means to an end. So exercising authority has a purpose. The, the, the giving of authority, the delegation isn't because look how great you are. No, none of us deserves the authority delegation we've been given at all. It's all God's grace. Anything that we are making decisions over is a blessing that God has given us and a privilege that we should be in fear and trembling before him to say, I want to do it right. Right? That's the way to think about it. Oh, I'm the one that has the say. 
What a knucklehead. What a horrible attitude to have. We need to be in fear and trembling before God. Father, I am like a little kid, like Solomon said. I don't know how to come in or go out. Let me do this in a way that pleases you and stop me, shut me down from messing this up. That's the attitude of humility that uh, I, I believe best portrays our Savior and how he deals with his delegated authorities. He fears the Lord, as it were, in wisdom and says he's going to walk worthy and righteously before his creator and his decisions. So it's not merely an exercise of higher authority. So what's the purpose of that authority? That's the issue. And so all of these things are true. You protect them, you feed them, you have authority, and you need to exercise it and assert it. But what's the point? As you all know, it's, it's because you have a mission. It's not an opportunity for vicarious self-indulgence. Now we're really beating some of you all up. I don't know who. Oh, we've got a boy. I think he'll be a pitcher. Why will he be a pitcher? Because I was a pitcher. Because I wanted to, wanted to play pro ball. Maybe we'll set him up to pro, play pro ball. Just a silly example. But this idea of watching the kids grow up, we love it. As they grow up, they do things, and we remember how we did things, and maybe they do them better, and we can kind of enjoy that. That's part of the blessing of raising children. But to say, I want this to happen in this person's life for me, well, that's wrong. Obviously, it's not your life, it's their life. And so I just threw this one in because it, I guess it turns out it's a problem. Is raising the kids about you? So easy for it to become about us. And not just with this vicarious, you know, my boy's going to be a quarterback. I always wanted to be the quarterback. You know, well, too bad. Wah. You know, we have bigger fish to fry here, and it's not about you at all. But you, being about God, have a mission. And that's important, I think, to think through. In uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, we've seen three motivating principles for children to obey their parents. Three motivating principles for children, for them to think through. And I'm giving you what I see as a lesson from Paul in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, a lesson that the kids need to learn. And it's, it's kind of a curriculum for life. And it is, what are you doing and why? Why should children obey their parents? If they can figure this out, I think they have almost figured out life. And it's strange that way because it is about them relating to us, children to their parents. If they can figure out children and parents under the power of God and the filling of the Spirit, then they've figured out life because it's preparation and training to exercise divine institution one, me and God. It's a model that God's given us. The kids are supposed to relate to their parents in the Lord. And, they, and that's in the household. You're not supposed to necessarily obey your parents once you're not in the household, but you're always responsible to honor them. I would make that distinction. Honor your father and mother goes on for life. Obey them is while you're in their household. It's a pretty commonsensical thing. Some parents don't ever want the kids to leave the household because they're addicted to their children obeying them. And again, it's about them. And uh, that's pretty gross. But it's also extremely common and uh, no doubt some of you have seen it, and I'm sorry to say some of you have seen it up close. Daddy, when he has compliant children, can really get to appreciate that compliance. And then, uh, well, there's gross everywhere we turn because of humans. But the first argument Paul gives in uh, Ephesians 6.1 
is it's right. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And that's morality. Morality is the question of what is right and wrong. What is right and wrong? And you know it's right because God tells you. Because we don't have a moral, inherent moral sense that comports with God's, except that God conforms us to his moral sense through his word. And this is absolutely certain. I always wondered why Paul does this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Why does he say it that way? Because he's establishing a moral basis to understand all of life. It's the right thing to say God is God and I'm not. It's the right thing to say God makes the decision of, who makes, of who's got delegated responsibility. I don't make that decision. And since God has delegated and I'm serving him, the right thing is to, in him, submit to that delegated authority. And that is a moral thought. And, and this is so important. We're, trying to, we're, we're going for moral formation of our kids. We want them to ask, don't we, what's the right thing? What's right after all? What's the right course of action? Now, here's the way we tend to do this. We think that something's right because we feel good about it or we feel bad about the thing we think is wrong. And our feelings kind of guide us. And there's a component in your feelings connected to your conscience, and that's part of how you live. As you kind of, your gut tells you that's, that's not right. But we're not just called to live by our gut. That's helpful. We're supposed to think. Why do I think that's wrong? And I would challenge you to become more and more that kind of person. It's asking why. Why do I say, my dad says do this, and then I go do it because I should. I feel like I should. Why should you? Because it's morally right to, in Christ, obey your delegated authority under him for his sake. It's the right thing to do. Uh, Psychologists in some quarters would call this internal motivation as opposed to external motivation. I want to do the right thing because it's right. Think about it. I want to do the right thing because it's right. Do you live there? It, it, it's related to the question I was asked in a, a camp ministry event. Kid said, I, I asked, actually, I asked the question. I said, do we have to uh, obey God as believers? And, and the Christian child said no. And her argument was a very interesting soteriological argument. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And if you have Christ by faith, and you do only by faith, then you have life and you cannot uh, pass into death separation from God because he gives you his life. She didn't quite say it that way, but she was saying you're saved if you believe in Christ. And you're not saved by obeying, by doing works. You're saved by trusting. The one obedience is to trust in Christ. And that's the gospel. And her argument was, we don't have to do the things he says besides believing in Christ in order to avoid the lake of fire. And she thought that to obey or or that that to have to means that you don't go to the lake of fire. And that was the only moral reality was if either I go to the lake of fire or I don't. And I thought that's an interesting digital world. I'm either in the lake of fire or I'm not. And there is a digital factor there if you have Christ or if you don't. But that was the basis for the morality. And I'm like, well, there's no Christian moral sense. There's no walking in the light. There's no righteousness in that worldview. I didn't say that to her, but I've been thinking about this. Yeah, you do have to obey him. And if you don't, you're not going to the lake of fire. But those are different issues. If you're a believer in Christ, your obedience doesn't secure you. Christ's obedience secures you. It's so important to get that. But I hope you can see that we don't have a cultivated moral sense. And if we just listen to Jesus, we would get one. 
What does Jesus say in Matthew 5 about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? They'll be filled. I want that. Whatever that is, fill me up. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to know. And that's what the moral sense does. Now, Christianity is not morality. But Christianity is moral. It's the only moral because it's the righteousness of God lived out in the life of the believer. So this is an internal motivation. It starts with children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. That should be enough of an argument. But he doesn't just stop there. He then says the Ten Commandments. He says this is something God has commanded. And I believe when God gives you a command, it's now a matter of relationship with him. Do you want a relationship with me? Here's the, here's the way it works. Walk with me. Walk with me. You're going to obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. He gives the quote of the Ten Commandments. And in Colossians 3, uh, you have the same issue of relationship with God. Colossians 3, children. Obey your parents with reference to all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Why does he say obey your parents in Colossians 3? You want to please God. How do you know what pleases God? Well, it just, I feel like it. I feel like I know. Well, that's not good enough because we're broken. How do you know what pleases God? He tells you. One of the things that pleases him for children is to obey their parents with reference to all things because it's well-pleasing to him. So you have more than just it's right, but it's related to it's right. It's that it's God's relationship. I want to please him. It's a relationship with God. It's personal. So much that's happened in uh, Christianity has sought to make things mechanical when you have it as relationship. You know what I'll say about relationship and mechanics. The Christian life is a relationship. It's not a set of rules. But relationship has mechanics. The mechanics of relationship have to do with communication. I don't know you unless you reveal yourself to me. That requires communication. God talks to us in his word. We talk to him in prayer. But that's not all there is to the relationship. Those who keep my commands are those who love me, Jesus says. He gives me instructions. And he is pleased with me as I carry them out in the power of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that he's provided. So relationship with God is a great a great motivation for why you would do it. You want to walk with God? You've got to obey your parents, children. And this is something the kids, see, this is a curriculum for their development. They need to know that. And that's why Paul is directly addressing the parents. I think there's a curriculum for parents to train their children in what Paul tells them in verse 4 when you go through verses 1 through 3. And then, of course, you have the desired outcome when he says it's commanded in the Ten Commandments, and that has a promise that you live long in the, in the land, that you live long in the earth, that it go well with you and you live long in the earth. Now, some of you are, have just woken up to uh, actual motivation. Okay, there's good things that happen if I do it. And psychologists call that external motivation, or exterior, or ex- externally motivated, that there is, um, there is a carrot or a stick, and that's what drives me. I'm after that carrot. I want, to, I want to go forward toward the thing that I want, and I want it to go well with me, and I live long on the earth. But see, all three of these things are presented as motivation, that it's the right thing, that it's a relationship with God, that there's a good benefit to you that you want to happen. All three of these are presented because we're complex. All three motivate us. And I contend our children should know these things because Paul tells them that. He's dress, directly addressing the kids. But here's the interesting question. How is a seven-year-old going to know this? How's a seven-year-old going to develop a moral sense from this? 
from what Paul says when he's addressing them. Well, you're going to teach, teach them to read. Literacy is a prerequisite for, it's an inherent command and <laughs> implication in the Paul talking to the kids. You can say, well, they could hear, you could read it to them. Uh-oh. If they can't read, and if, even if they can't read, but they're not good at reasoning yet, they have to be taught. That's why I say verses one through three is a curriculum parents are given so they can train their kids. And it's so helpful. There are lots of great books on parenting. I've read a lot of them, obviously. Um, <laughs> okay, that was supposed to be really funny. Um, <laughs> th- thank you. I, I've, learned, I've learned from the left to ask for, for claps and, jo- and laughs when I tell a joke. I forget who last, what, what liberal, what leftist last asked for, for a clap. Hey, you should clap at that line. Forget, it might have been, was it Neville Pulaski? Na- Nancy Pelosi. See, all these, all these things are just, it's just the, what he's saying in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 6. And this is what happens when you look at it and ask it questions, and you ask the right questions, and they're sitting right here. The motivation for obeying your parents for children are these good things. I have a good moral sense. I want a relationship with God. And I want the good outcome, the, the, the cause effect. The cause is obey, obey them. The effect is long life in the, in the earth. And it go well with you. I, I want that. Cause and effect. And so kids are learning to reason with this, but the parents are being trained to teach them these things by this content. When you get to verse 4, now we're talking about what we're talking about, parents and children. As for fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. Beloved, that sets conditions so that they can learn something. One thing I've learned in all my vast experience training boys, I have nothing to tell you about training girls, except I could say maybe there's some analogy because I haven't done it. But in training boys a little bit, I can tell you that um, if they're angry, they're not learning anything. Because I have a summary statement that I've learned. It's an empirical conclusion I've drawn. The Bible doesn't say this directly. It's, it hints at it and foolishness and anger in the Proverbs. But I believe anger makes you stupid. I think that's a good summary. There's something about a loss of oxygen to the brain or something that you just, you th- and, it, and, and at the same time, you think you're smart. You get up ahead of steam and you want to have an argument and anger. And you're like, oh, we got to do this now. Why do you need to do it now? Because you're angry and you won't be angry later. You have energy to do it now, but you don't have intelligence to do it. It's a very interesting thing, anger. If you provoke them to anger, they're not going to be able to walk with God because they're reacting to you. And so it, the, the question, is it about you? But this is the way it works. You're, in this DI3, parents and children, you're equipping them for DI1, and so you don't want to be provoking them to anger. What else is going on with provoking them to anger? Well, it's just sin. And they don't need to walk in sin. They need to walk in the light. So don't provoke them to anger. It's a prohibition. And Paul really emphasizes this. He does it twice. And it, I think we should ponder it. We should ask why. Why does he say this? In Colossians 3.21, same thing. Fathers, do not provoke or irritate your children. So it's the one thing he tells them not to do. And it's a summary. And I think if you, if you think about what anger is, it's very common. It's almost seems like it's default, um, sometimes with parents and children. What, what's going on? Why, why is there so much problems? Oh, she's a teenager. You know, that thought, like, well, 
what's the issue? Well, you got sin natures. You got developing all the things that are going on in the body. You've got the two sin natures beating against each other with parents and children, and and so it's obvious that this would be something to guard against. But in terms of the context where the kids are learning to serve God and DI three, I think it's very clear that you're going to shut that down with provocation to anger. Now, watch out. I've actually seen an argument, a very interesting one, where if the child gets angry, it's the parent's fault just by the fact that the kid is angry. So they try to force, they try to, to offload their responsibility for their sinful reaction to whatever on the parents. You wouldn't let me have X, Y, or Z, so that makes me angry, so you're provoking me to anger, is the, is the satanic lawyer argument, right? And it's, it's evil. It's not true. But, but you have to be careful not to, to take steps not to provoke them to anger. And that, this means guarding your own sinful tendencies. But the alternative is so clear and helpful. But rear them or nourish them, literally, to, to raise like, like you raise a plant. Ectrepho. Rear them or nourish them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. I think this is the purpose of parenting. The reason we're given the kids is not so we can have authority over them or live our lives vicariously through them or, or uh, just that they please us or all the things that get, get distractions and they become distractions along the way. I think this is the purpose, to nourish them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord because you're equipping them for a lifetime of service to God in DI1. So what's the purpose of parenting? But nourish them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. I can summarize this way as we close. Parenting is pastoral. I'm a pastor. I love being a pastor. It's my calling. It's my gifting. And I know what it looks like. And this is pastoral. To be a father or a mother is to be a shepherd. And I didn't say, well, you don't need pastors and elders in your church. I'm saying that there is a pastoral function that parents are given. That the pastor of the local church isn't except over his own kids. It's pastoral. Pastors, that's Latin. Shepherd is the English word. Shepherds lead, feed, and protect. They lead them to the good food in Psalm 23. They feed them in John 21, 13 through 15. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And they protect the flock. And that's why David is able to win the hearts of Israel by killing Goliath with one shot, one kill, because he's protecting his flock. He protects them as he told King Saul. The shepherd leads, feeds, and protects. I've thought about this a little bit. What are you feeding them? This word nourish, to rear them is to raise them, to nourish them up. You're nourishing them on the instruction, admonition of the Lord. That's what you're feeding them. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. This is what we need to do. We need to understand a moral sense, which begins with authority and responding to your parents, as you should. We need a, uh, a sense of relationship with God. His commands are given to us because he wants us to serve him and love him by serving him. And there is good outcome for you if you will. There's all these three things are part of this life and this relationship with God. It's a beautiful package. But we have to do this as parents. We have to be pastoral if we're going to get this right in terms of equipping the children for DI1, for their relationship with God. They do their work, the shepherd, for an economic purpose. Shepherds do not just like animals. Oh, it smells so good to be out here with the sheep. Most people don't like the smell, but I've grown accustomed to it. That's not why shepherds are out there. Why does someone keep 
herds and flocks. What's the purpose? It's economic. And what is the economic purpose? Help me out. What's the reason to keep sheep? Wool or meat. So you're, uh, and there's, there's an argument you could do the three things. You can sell its wool. You could use the wool for yourself. The wool is the fruit of the, of the flock, if you will. You know, think about that. Christ is our shepherd, we're his flock. What's the fruit? You know, what's the production you get? So you got the wool. Um, you can sell uh, sheep. You can sell to people that want to buy them. That's part of the, the market and trade is we had sheep that were born to the flock and we're going to sell some off and then somebody else is going to build their herd and that's, that's the source of income. But then also there's the meat side of it, the butcher shop. Um, and as a shepherd, I have to say that I'm glad that it's okay to mix the metaphor a little bit because lamb chops are fantastic on the grill if, they're, if you marinate them right. Um, uh, but that has nothing to do with me being a pastor. All right. They do their work for an economic purpose. They have a bigger goal in mind than we're just out there with the flock. And some people are so petty that they think that raising kids is about abusing them, is about, is about domination. It's just their sin nature, and they need to deal with that. If you're like that, that's not what it's about. You need to assert authority, but in humility before God. Because you can figure out what his purpose is. The purpose of the shepherd has, uh, there's an economic purpose. What is the pastoral purpose of parenting in Ephesians 6, 4? It's so that they know God. So they're raised in the fear of God because they have received his instruction and his correction, his admonition. Rearing children in the instruction of the Lord equips children to make right choices in divine institution number one, me and God. So if you'll do this, they can then make right choices. And that means saying no to my sin nature, restraining lust. That means saying yes to God and the works he's called us to do. That means being about his word, the disciplines that we have to engage in to even have this perspective. It's very clear to me right now, but tomorrow is a new day and I've got to get in the word and talk to him some more tomorrow. And that's the Christian life and the kids have to learn that. Rearing children in the admonition of the Lord corrects their wrong choices and so then also trains them in DI1 for going forward. Admonition is the correction side. It's nutheteo. It's the, it's the correction. Admonition is negative. You did that wrongly. I should say wrongly. That was incorrect action you just took. You have to make a right decision here. And how you do that, I didn't say it tells you how to admonish. Sometimes it's done by questions. What happened? Why? These are good questions. I don't know. Well, I require you to know. And there'll be consequences if you don't start knowing. Because you don't want to think, and I'm engaging your thinking. Let's, let's turn on the, the steam engine there and get your brain thinking. Admonition is correction. So in both of these, the instruction and admonition of the Lord, both of these you can see how you're training the child to relate to God. It's about God, and, and that's the release. Once they're out of the household, it's them and God without me at all. Now, all along, they've got to make their own choices from the youngest little toddler to, you know, till they die. They have to make their choices, but I'm kind of hand over hand with them as, as their parent until they're out, out and, and off. And that's part of this development process. So parenting is a long haul. In Ephesians 6, it's a long thing. In verse 2, it's for life, honor your father and mother. In verse 4, it's while they're in the household, you have to train them and correct them. It's a desired outcome. There's a desired outcome, a relationship with God or using their volition properly before God. There's a right choice to make, and it starts with who is God. 
That's your desired outcome. So now you know what you're doing. This sets you up to drive the car. If I don't know where I'm going, I'm just driving. But if I have an objective, if I have a mission, now it's all part of that mission. It is proactive. Parenting is proactive. The instruction of the Lord saturates this process. It isn't, well, we're just letting them kind of grow up. You know, they're going to just do what they're going to do. And we just fed them and we made sure they didn't run into traffic. It's proactive about this instruction. And so you have to look for opportunities. You have to be intentional. You have to plan ahead. And these are the kinds of things that really challenge us because we're so busy and, uh, and the world is militating against these things. Just get them on front of a screen and they'll give you peace and you can do, do what you want to do. I believe parenting in Ephesians 6 is an aggregation of parenting choices to have that desired outcome that they grow up and they're raised in the admonition of the Lord, then it's one less at a time that builds an entire, the entire outcome of what the child uh, does with that training. And they have to choose all along to walk with you. They got to put their hand in your hand and walk with you. And if they won't, they won't. And you can't ultimately make them. Oh, I can make them. No, you can't. Because they have to choose, but you're equipping them as they walk with you to make better and better, closer choices to your creator. That word admonition is correction, and it does correct as necessary. But the purpose of parenting is not to correct the kids, right? It's to train them to love God. To love God. So it's corrective as necessary. And it fully takes into account that child's volition. The whole passage, Ephesians 5, 18, 5, 15 through 6, 9, command after command after command because we are personal beings with the capacity to choose. Little kids are, adults are, wives are, husbands are, slaves are, masters. They're all given their instructions. So you fully have to understand that this child has a volition and they make their choices and you make your choices. And I may have to make a different choice than I like to based on the choice you just made. And that's admonition and correction as needed. Takes into account that volition and it sets conditions for learning. Not provoking to anger definitely sets them up to learn the lesson because they're not being distracted by sin that takes them completely out of the, out of the package. Some reflections on uh, this to think about. Some of you don't have kids yet. Some of you are like, oh, well, I didn't think about any of that stuff when we raised our kids. <clears throat> One of my favorite uh, comedians, uh, the Southern guy that passed away in 2014, one of his favorite bits was to talk about the differences between kid, uh, parenting now and parenting back then and how we didn't have helmets. We had a banana seat uh, <laughs> on our bicycle. And uh, if you tried to jump that over something, you'd, you know, you'd uh, kill yourself. Um, and uh, he, he said, uh, you know, today everyone's so worried about where are the children and, and you know, they're, everything's so protected. He said, when I was a kid, the, the parents would be like, where are them kids? I don't know where they're gone. <laughs> they're out there playing. They're doing what they need to do. They're out there being kids. And um, it's hard uh, training them because they have to choose. And you get these expectations and they don't get met. And... But we have a mission. We know where we're headed for. We know what we're after. And it doesn't say that parents will be evaluated for whether their kids turn out. The evaluation is what did you do with what God gave you? What did you do as it depended on you? And so DI1 keeps on being the basis for all government. Our Father, thank you for 
the institutions you've given us of delegated authority for the challenge that they pose to us, that we are responsible for our choices. And we ask that you would help our moms and dads trust you in the process as they rear their children, they nourish them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. Father, there are people that don't have kids yet. We pray for them to strengthen in this area in anticipation of this mission. And um, those of us who, uh, those, those among us who have completed this process, give them the wisdom to share, to encourage, to equip the younger. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.